Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, can at times contain adult language and themes. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Digital Dissection Podcast, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties, creators, and topics. We are your humble hosts, Joe and Mark, two pop culture nerds dedicated to telling entertainment history before it's forgotten too soon. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog for more information on the show. We also love to hear from you. Write us at digitaldissectionpodcast at gmail.com. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to dissecting. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. Today, we are honored to be joined by a very special guest. You may know him from his various publications, such as Vigilance, Blood, Sweat, and Fears, and the Lincoln Bright Stories. Or, for our fellow 90s kids, you'll definitely remember him as Zordon from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Welcome to the podcast, David J. Fielding. David, how are we doing tonight? I'm good. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. Yeah, honestly, I was telling people uh, pretty much all the past like two weeks that the inner 90s kid was kind of screaming. Uh, <laughs> quite a bit <laughs> when we were able to connect so it's it's awesome to get to speak with you david and we really do appreciate the time and uh no problem yeah yeah so you know starting off uh we've talked a little bit about this that you know we like to dig into you know not necessarily to like your social security card but we want to go into your past a little bit and and sure. uh <laughs> talk about some of your origin <laughs> story but one thing i wanted to uh, just bring up really quick because um, my family was a military family i was a military brat you know and um didn't really have like a, a permanent residence for for quite a long time and i understand that your family was uh, in the armed forces too yeah that's correct uh, my dad was in the air force so um my life up until about the age of 16 17 uh was moving all around the country my mother was from england so we we lived over there for a while but we lived uh or have traveled through uh each of the um uh 48 uh, contiguous united states uh all over my my grandparents lived in indiana that's where my father was born um uh, and we would go and visit them every summer. But, you know, we we lived in Michigan. We lived in Colorado. We lived in Washington State. Uh, and then when my father retired, uh, we he settled in a small town called Paris, Texas, uh, which is where I finished high school. Cool. But, yeah, we were all over the place. Yeah. When it comes to acting, uh, both, like, in person and voice acting, they get, I feel like they're kind of different paths to go on. So we're just kind of wondering... But even before maybe you got into acting and even writing, did you ever have like a dream job growing up or something that you kind of saw yourself doing when you were out of school? Well, I I, I had the idea from a very early age that I wanted to be in the movies, um, simply because uh, to me, the movies were like a great form of escape. Um, I used to watch the Saturday afternoon um, science fiction theater that would be on television or... Um, um, you know, the Saturday or Sunday evening movies or, or whatever it was. And I was always very drawn towards um, these very sort of fantasy-oriented or science fiction-oriented stories. And, you know, I watched films like, you know, Green Slime and, uh, you know, I'd watch all the classical movies from, you know, King Kong all the way through up, you know, through modern werewolf stories and stuff like that. So 
I always had this idea that I wanted to go to the movie so I could be in a movie like that, that I could um, put on some weird makeup and, you know, scare people or something like that. But, um, and I would make my poor parents uh, the carport while I acted out scenes from the comic books that I was reading and stuff. So I had this sort of like dramatic bent when I was a kid, even though I was also at the same time, very timid. I was very shy mm -hmm. uh, and um, the outside world um, kind of held a sort of, um, I wouldn't, it was just like a generalized fear that, you know, if you were, if you, if you were off by yourself, you know, bad things could happen or and something like that. So um, I always had this kind of like timid side to myself as well. And yet when, you know, by the time I reached high school and started to do theater, um, you know, I, I picked a, a profession that was, you know, it, you can't be afraid. You can't, you can't be timid if you're going to do something like that. So I had to sort of um, reconcile those two sides of myself uh as far as um you know being brave enough to to put myself out there so that people could you know believe the characters that i were playing on stage and uh, in, our, in a way i think it kind of helped me because um uh because my father was in the air force because we moved around a lot i had a um i had the opportunity to meet a wide range of different types of people and um, the communities that we lived in, um, I think were kind of more diverse than the one that we settled into when we moved back to Texas. Because I always had uh, friends or acquaintances who were uh, people of color or from a different area of the world. Um, but when we settled here in Texas, it was, uh, it was really kind of a culture shock. And it was very clear that things were much more divided here. And uh, that was an adjustment to make. Um, but I, I think that kind of experience about being moving around a lot and being around different people allowed me to have a greater sense of empathy of sorts mm -hmm. so that uh, I could that's that was part of my toolbox that I could dip into whenever I was creating a character on the stage and stuff like that. That's really cool. I, I really uh, like hearing that because I'm not just trying to mirror my own experiences here, but it it's 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 becoming very uh, palpable for me to remember some of those same experiences I had because each military base you go to is, you know, it's it's same but different. If yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense, you know, you, you've got your your post exchange and and you know some of the things that you're used to seeing, um, but yeah, they're definitely a, a melting pot. And so when you do get out of that life, it it's it, there's some shock to it, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I went through uh, army basic training because I was in the National Guard for a while, and again, it was one of those experiences that really kind of teaches you uh, you need to get along um, yeah. with whoever it is that's there because you know you're going to have to count on that person to help you or whatever. Um, and you know, and I, I really do think that uh, a great number of people. Uh, Kind of miss out on that when they're growing up if they if they live in a um kind of static community um and i taught high school for a very brief six months uh for, and it was very depressing to me to ask kids where they wanted to travel to or what places would they like to visit and have 90 percent of them say oh i don't want to go anywhere i'm afraid of moving over there I, i'm not sure those people would like me or i'm not sure i would like them and uh i was i was like oh man you're you're kind of cheating yourself out of a great experience mm -hmm. of being able to um, experience, you know, how other people's live their lives and and what your similarities are going to be with those people. Um, so, uh, yeah, I found that just a 
just a tiny bit depressing. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 as a teacher teaching high school myself, I definitely experienced that with my students too, where I tried to tell them like, hey, you know what, Stephen's point is nice, it's, it's great, uh, but Wisconsin's big, the United States is huge, this hemisphere is enormous, and the world's infinite. Like, there's so much out there, you can't, you can't be stuck here your whole life. And if, if you love being here, that's great, but be open to like trying new things, meeting yeah. new people, and working with them. It's what you absolutely need. So uh, more on, on your title, you grew up in the 70s and you, you touched on how science fiction was a big part of your life. I've, I've noticed you're also a, a really big horror fan. Uh, and I think well, the Omen was a childhood favorite, right? It's interesting that you bring that up because when I, when I, grew up, when I was growing up and uh, I read voraciously as a kid, uh, I was always uh, kind of ticking off my teachers because I think they were called SRAs. We had these SRA uh, reading things in school where it would, it would give you like a color-coded page that would have all this text and you read a story and then you would answer questions on the back or whatever. And I was always like five, six, eight pages ahead of everybody else in the class because I was just reading them so fast and, and drinking them in. But all of the stuff that I was reading when I was growing up was, um, uh, it was either, it was mainly fantasy-based stuff. I, I really got into, um, uh, like J.R. Tolkien and and Edgar Rice Burroughs and and other stories that were of a fantasy bent and and in the late seventies I again was introduced to Dungeons and Dragons and oh. telling these uh, stories or experiencing game where you had these uh, characters who were you know fighting you know they were they represented the light and they were fighting against forces of darkness mm -hmm. and uh, I read a lot of fantasy because. For me, fantasy was all about hope uh, that, uh, you know, good triumphs over the evil, that, you know, you have to have hope in the world. And um, and then I want to say about 15 years ago, uh, I really kind of lost my taste for it. I kind of started to really question why I had read so many of these fantasy stories, um, but didn't see any of that stuff kind of coming true in real life that these fantasy stories that we tell one another these uh mythic stories that you know of you know i was a big fan of of greek and roman myth when i was growing up and read a lot of those stories and um we would have you know these stories that we tell each other over and over have the same lesson you know don't be a bully stand up for your friends you know do the right thing when even though if it costs something you know you have to fight against the darkness in the world and yet, as I, the older I got, the more it seemed like the darkness was fresh, was pushing in, and the light really wasn't winning. So, as a writer, I started to um, stop writing fantasy-oriented stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I stopped reading fantasy-oriented stuff, and I stopped watching a lot of fantasy-oriented movies because they. They weren't lying, but it, at the same time, they didn't seem to be true. And it was just sort of like a um, a distraction. It was kind of a bread and circuses kind of thing where it's like, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Here's a wonderful movie about a dragon. Watch this. <laughs> and um, so I, I kind of soured on it. And uh, I, you know, I stopped playing uh, tabletop role-playing games and... Um, when I started to really delve into writing short stories and um, 
trying to get published, mm -hmm. what I found myself being drawn to were these stories of that were of a darker bent that had a little bit of a supernatural element to them because that was my way of trying to control the darkness, to um, to give darkness a face that I could recognize and push back against. Mm -hmm. And uh, rather than write about unicorns or uh, whatever, uh, I found myself, you know, trying to process or or to uh, <laughs> therapize myself with these stories of, uh, it, you know, you, you mentioned that I was a, a fan of horror, and I'm not a fan mm -hmm. of at all oh. I, I hate jump scares i hate slasher films uh i cannot <laughs> through um some of those movies because mm -hmm. i i don't see harming human bodies as entertainment mm -hmm. uh, which is very strange that i'm i've written a number of stories and i'm still writing stories about these uh supernatural entity entities that are trying to harm people and, mm -hmm. and so, uh but I'm. I, I wouldn't call myself a fan of horror because, like I said, I mean, there's still that timid part of me that is afraid of things, and I jump at shadows and and <laughs> kind of thing. But I also think it serves me in a way because it allows me to sort of like, in those moments when you know all the lights are on and or there's sunlight streaming in, I can look at those things and go, "What makes this tick? What you know? Why is this you know thing doing this? Or what is the reasoning behind it?" And um, uh, but yeah, I think that's that's where all that comes from. Yeah, it's a very very Dark Knight esque approach you've taken there. I just think of um, you've got uh, Bruce Wayne sharpening up his first batarang and Alfred asking why bats. It's because they uh, that's what he's afraid of, and now his Vic now his enemies will share his dread. And that's kind of what you're doing here is you're taking this idea of something that frightens you and almost compartmentalizing it to deal with it and yeah, making well, it so you can you can you can work through it. Yeah, I think, uh, especially with the Lincoln Bright books, I mean, I've always had this idea that, you know, everything ripples. Mm -hmm. um, uh, every choice has a consequence, and those consequence consequences, you know, they, they ripple outwards. It's not just, uh, if, if you perform an action, it's not just uh, the point where you do it that gets harmed, mm -hmm. that, that goes outwards. It touch, touches other people. And... Um, I think that's like the main theme that goes through the Lincoln Bright books is that, uh, you know, the, the whole idea behind the glimpse is that the stuff that people couldn't deal with is what sticks behind and what continues to harm the area that they inhabited or the people that they, they met. And, and, uh, you know, we've, we, how many times have we read in the news that, you know, generational trauma exists mm -hmm. that, uh, the sins of the father are passed on to the sins of the son. And, and mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, things ripple and, and things bounce back and, you know, not to get uh, political or, or too depressing or whatever, but, you know, what's happening in on the other side of the world right now is a result of something that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still rippling outwards. And I think that's one of the lessons it's very hard for, for human beings to learn is because we don't, you know, we don't live long enough to really learn all the stuff that we need to learn in order to be the better part of ourselves, unless you're really, really lucky or really, really aware of who you are.
we just came, we seem to, you know, keep making the same sort of stumbles here and there all, all over the place. And how do we solve that problem? I don't, I don't yeah. know. I was going to say, David, you mentioned uh, something that kind of stuck with me for a moment there that, you know, when you, when you look to some of the earlier sci-fi, some of the earlier fantasy, um, especially like superhero properties and comics, they definitely had that that sense of right and wrong pretty clearly defined, right? You didn't have to worry about anti-heroes and trying to guess, uh, you know, who was going to most likely be standing at the end of the day. Um, but I, I've kind of felt that about sci-fi and fantasy in the same way that you mentioned that, you know, the further we kind of get away from that age, uh, the the more that I also kind of check out of it. And so I, I definitely understand what you mean by that because. I mean, I look to Star Trek in particular, right? Star Trek kind of taught us, you know, let's let's talk through our differences as opposed to, you know, pew, 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 and let's put holes in things kind of thing. <laughs> so, but I guess it gets to the point of kind of looking at sci-fi, looking at superheroes for a moment. It does actually kind of bring us to our, our first fan question of the night. And uh, Joe, definitely take it away. Yeah, absolutely. So um, our fans want to know if you had a favorite superhero property. And they've noticed that also you've referenced Moon Knight quite a bit. Um, any comic properties you've really enjoyed outside of superheroes? My favorite superhero is Captain America. And and not because uh, of his association with the United States, but basically what Steve Rogers stands for. Steve Rogers stands for, uh, we're going to do what's right. And um, so Cap Cap has always been my favorite hero. Um, uh, also because he's a man out of time, and I, and at, at points in my life, I felt like I'm out of time. I'm out of step with what's popular or or what's going on in the world. And the aesthetic of things that I like are are from an, a different era. You know, um, I like very vintage stuff. <laughs> uh, I I wish all of us still wore three piece suits to work and you know, took a little bit more pride in how, how we present ourselves to the world. But at the same time, we live in a world that's like, hey, it's all about comfort and convenience. And I have so many t-shirts, it's not even funny. <laughs> uh, you know, the stuff that I really sort of look at and admire is, is from, a, from a different time. So, I mean, I identify that aspect of Steve. But it's really sort of like the, the whole idea of uh, standing up for what's right, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, you know, we're, we're going to do this, you know, for everybody, not just for a few. So that's, that's my favorite uh, superhero property. Uh, I do enjoy Moon Knight though, but from a, for a different reason than I think most people uh, might think of, because while Moon Knight is a very cool character with his uh, disassociative disorder and, and stuff like that, the sort of like, you know, is this real? Is this happening? Uh, kind of thing, but Moon Knight's first appearance showed up in one of my favorite comics as a kid. He's he uh, his first appearance was in Werewolf by Night, and from about the age of seven or so, I wanted to be a werewolf so badly <laughs> that you know we lived in Colorado, and whenever the moon would come up, it was just huge, and wolves were very cool, and I was a werewolf for Halloween. I don't know how many years, and um, the comic book of Werewolf by Night, where there was this, you know, and, and when I look at it as an adult, I'm thinking, oh, wow, what is what does that say about my psyche about, you know, the it's it's really kind of like the Hulk or the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing. It's like there are two sides of your personality. There's the the Bruce Banner and the Hulk and then there's Jack Russell and the werewolf. And um, 
but I just really wanted to be this wild creature that would run through the woods and howl. And um, and when Moon Knight showed up in his all white costume and he's showing these, he's throwing these little moon discs at the werewolf. I was like, this is freaking awesome. <laughs> so uh, that's where my love of Moon Knight comes from. And and also because uh, Oscar Isaac is just brilliant. He's oh, awesome. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, and I think uh, so. A similar appreciation I have for Captain America always, uh, kind of like with you, where it's it's more about what he stands for and the way he carries himself than what he believes. And it always makes me think of a quote from uh, the Civil War comic book where uh, things are just starting to divide, the heroes are starting to separate. And he says, "When the whole mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move." And yeah. that is just something that just radiates awesomeness with captain america yeah yeah and, and uh i was a little kind of ticked off that they gave that line to sharon in the movies but oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it in context of the thing mm -hmm. but what's, what's really interesting about that line is that uh anybody from any whatever wherever you land on the political spectrum somebody can take that line and goes oh that's for me mm -hmm. and uh you know so it it is very cool. It's also very problematic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Agreed. Okay. So kind of shifting back towards becoming who you are. Um, when it came to acting, you said there's something you knew you wanted to do from a very young age. But when you land in Texas and you get to college, you get to the University of Texas, uh, acting is now at the forefront, definitely, like it was before. So is there anything during your time at the University of Texas, um, any courses or productions or professors that really stand out that like helped you get to where you are now? I wish I remembered what courses I took at the University of Texas other than theater. I know I did. I know I took a bunch <laughs> of courses because I graduated. Uh, <laughs> no, I did, you know, I, I took English and science and all the things that I needed to to fulfill the, the the GPA average or whatever, mm -hmm. but my my memory of my time at at what was Southwest Texas State University, but is now just Texas University now, um, was I spent twenty out of every twenty four hours at the theater building, um, either goofing off or working on a show or taking a class and mm -hmm. just. Um, really sort of stretching my ability to perform. And I was blessed to uh, work with a wonderful director by the name of Jay Jennings, who, um, I'm, I'm, this is very selfish of me to say, he put on some of the best productions I, I ever took part in, simply because Jay had this, uh, this epic vision of all of the shows that we did. When we did Romeo and Juliet, he had the entire stage uh, molded out of poor foam and created a, a bridge. And, and um, I was lucky enough to, to star in three of Jay's uh, productions and all of them were just huge. They were these massive undertakings that um, sadly <laughs> at the time, uh, only ran for like six or eight performances. They were, they were, you know, we rehearsed them for two or three months mm -hmm. and then they were over in a week. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are visual records there are photographs or whatever, but uh, I started in Jay's uh, Romeo and Juliet. I, uh, I played the role of the devil in um, Cloud of Witnesses, which was about the, uh, 
the Battle for the Alamo. Um, and then I got to play Antonio Salieri in Amadeus. So um, uh, those three productions had a real big impact on, or at least for me, you know, what the power of theater was all about. It was larger than life. It was, it was a way to sort of sweep the audience off its feet and take it just to a different place in time. And Sheila Hargett, who was the costume designer there, uh, costumed all three of those shows. And I wore some of the best awesome stuff <laughs> that I had in all of my, my theater degree, uh, mm -hmm. theater uh, training. Uh, so I had an amazing time at, at Southwest. And uh, <laughs> the main reason I did theater, uh, you know, when I was gotten in high school is because that's, for me, because I uh, we had moved to Texas, and if you if you don't play football in Texas, then you're not a guy. And uh, of course, you know, at, 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 I'm only like five seven, and so I didn't really measure up to uh, what was supposed to be a football star in Texas. Um, and so in my senior year, I, I didn't play football my senior year, uh, but I was also the only guy in the theater class, and that's. That's how I got to meet all the girls, and um, <laughs> that was what carried me, you know, to towards Southwest Texas State was it was not only a chance to improve the skill set, but it was a chance to to meet other girls and and find out more about what that was all about. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as a education major, I know exactly what that is. I was usually the only guy in all of my classes, so yeah, totally get it, and. <laughs> No, I don't know if it's necessarily like selfish to say that those are that's something you enjoyed because, like you said, um, the director and the costume designer and the world that they designed and the world that they made like sucked the audience in. And clearly, I mean, you have to do that to your actors too because yeah. if you're not invested in it, you don't believe it, then no one else is going to believe it. So yeah. the fact that you were enamored with it and you were able to carry out your role well enough to bring the audience in, like that's that's good directing, that's good everything, that's good production. Yeah, yeah. It, it, something I wondered, David. I, I listened to an interview uh, that you had a little while back that you mentioned the importance of networking. And after you know my collegiate studies, I went into business and sales, and and I totally when I heard this, like the the bell went off in my head. But you mentioned that you wished that you would have been taught more about networking while you're in school. How did you end up getting better at it over time? Because uh, I, I don't imagine think you had some foundations, right, with the military uh, brat moving around. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I ever developed any sort of like good networking skills because I never really developed uh, uh, how to talk to strangers a lot. Uh, I was It was very easy for me to talk to people in the theater department because we all had shared experience. We all knew what we were working on. Um, but ever, you know, anytime I would go to someplace outside of the theater world, um, uh, I was just very quiet, very uh, soft-spoken. Didn't really um, ask people what you know what what was going on with them. It was very hard for me to sort of like um, start conversations uh, to get to know people. And I wish that was one of the the skills that you know was sort of offered in in those type of programs. Because I feel looking back on my experience now, I I, I do feel that I spent too much time in school because uh, even though I have a, a bachelor's and a master's in in acting, and I, I'm I'm not saying this to be uh, arrogant or whatever, I didn't really learn a whole lot 
or anything new when I went to the master's program that I didn't know from the bachelor's program. Um, I just got to do a lot more classical theater. I got to do a lot more Shakespeare. I got to do a lot more adult-oriented uh, plays and stuff. But I, I didn't really sort of grow my skill set any more than I did during the bachelor program. And and again, uh, these the way the school system is set up, I stretched out my 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 school career over a decade, and really that's a long time to be spent in school. And and one of the reasons I did that is because one, um, I took time off to go through army basic training and do be part of the National Guard uh, to try to get the GI Bill to, hit, to help pay for school, and. Uh, because the way I scheduled my classes and stuff, it took me a little bit longer to get through the programs because I was off dancing or, you know, trying to get a girlfriend or playing D&D &D or, or whatever. Um, so, noble pursuits, David, all, by the way, all noble. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, when I look back at it, you know, I think, well, if I had just gone through the school program the way it's sort of like, everybody else does like you know you have four years of college and that's it then you're out into the real world um that probably would have uh changed a lot for me and i we probably wouldn't be talking today because if i'd gone out to los angeles earlier i probably would have failed earlier and you know walked away from that and got into something else and and whatever and not been there at the moment when um you know I was lucky enough to be selected to be a part of uh, that kids television show that we haven't gotten to. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we're on its doorstep. In the graduate program, in the master's program, there really wasn't a whole a class about um, how to survive uh, between jobs, because what we were taught uh, was this is how you get the role. They, you know, they taught us all about the auditioning process. They taught us all about uh, what to prepare for, um, you know, how how to cut a monologue and make sure you, you know, you do these things and and that kind of thing. Uh, and they taught you how to do the job. This is what you need to do, you know, in order to create a character, to be on stage, to show up on time, to make sure that you know your cues. And um, this is how you walk. This is how you talk. Uh, you know, they all those basics. Uh, but we were never taught, uh, you know. What it was like between jobs you know you know we knew how to look for the job we knew how to get the job we knew how to perform the job once we got it but what do you do in between you know we we weren't like uh given any sort of clues about um these are the kind of jobs that will help you um so you know you could work during the day and audition at night and do plays at night or or whatever and and these are the sort of uh tax problems that you might run into, or these are the tax loopholes, tax loopholes that might help save you money that, you know, the, you can claim these on your taxes, um, you know, all these different things that would um, sort of uh, the survival skills of an actor out, out in the wild, you know, we really weren't given anything like that. Um, at least not in my experience. I mean, I'm, I don't know about other programs, if, if Juilliard or if, um, uh, the actor studio or anything like that really delves into the nitty gritty about this is what you need to do to pound the pavement to, uh, and you know, we, I was never taught how to talk to people to, to network. I was never told about, um, all of the rules that need to be in place. And, you know, 
um, because especially in Hollywood or um, I don't know if it's the same in New York because I was never really uh, interested in going to New York, New York, but uh, the big lesson that I learned was that, you know, you should be nice to everybody, just be kind to everybody because you don't know who you're going to meet on the way up. And those people that you meet on the way up are the same people you're going to meet on the way down. And they'll remember you, uh, not because of what you did, not because of how good you were in this part. They'll remember you because you were the guy that got him a coffee or you were the guy that paid him a compliment or, or, you know, you held the door for them at one time, or you, you said something nice about their, you know, how they were dressed or whatever. Um, that was a skill that I learned or developed really, really late. And I wish I had learned that much earlier on um, about, you know, getting my head and my nose out of the script and the text and paying more attention to what was happening on the set around me mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I wish I had less school, <laughs> less time at school and, and more time learning how to network. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the networking opportunities when you showed up to audition, you know, for if you want to call him Zoltar, as he originally was called or, or, or Zordon. Now, your original audition here, there was only two people, you, yourself and one other person, right, <laughs> that were trying out for the role. In my in my memory of it, yeah. I don't know if they had seen anybody else during the day before I got there. But uh, when I showed up, um, uh, because my friend from school, uh, this is like my one example of how, you know, networking helps. I mean, I had gone to school with Stacy Fish in Texas. I mean, I had known Stacy uh, for years. And um, uh, she was actually working at Saban at the time on some of their direct-to-video -to movies and stuff. And uh, she was working on the pilot that they were shooting for the show called Dino Rangers. Um, and she said, hey, uh, we're having auditions for the character, and I think you'd be really good for it. You want to come down? I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and it was just me and that and another guy. Well, I mean, speaking of, like, we talked about how there was uh, Dino Rangers, obviously, is not what these show ended up being called. It gets the the very iconic Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and an amazing theme song that just, you know, gets gets everyone going <laughs> as soon as you hear it. And then from there, like, the show just steamrolls the audience. It's fantastic. Um, so do you know why they didn't keep, like, the original Dino Rangers theme or not theme, like, the Dino Rangers show and they actually ended up scrapping the first pilot and going with the second? Well, I don't, I don't know if you guys have seen the uh, original pilot that they had. I think they aired it on some special or something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, you know, when you see the, the the actors that played the Rangers when they transform, you know, Zach would transform into a Mastodon and just looked weird. And, yeah. Um, and the original Zoltar character was like this blob of green jello. You couldn't even recognize who it was or whatever. Uh, you know, I guess it didn't test well. And... Um, uh, I don't know why they didn't keep the Dino Ranger uh, name. Uh, I know they changed the original name uh, of Zoltar because uh, that was the name of the fortune teller machine from the movie Big. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, we don't want to have anything to do with that. So, um, and, you know, I guess it just made natural sense for them to call him Zordon because they had the Zords and, and all that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, but uh, I was very glad that they did clean up the footage because you could actually see my face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think they missed the beat because instead of the 
you know, the uh, beasts of old, they should have just gone with werewolves. Because I think you would have bought in, you know, maybe even tried out for a different I mean, role at that point. It was one of those things where, like, you know, that those 10 years of schooling really paid off for me because I was more than I was more than prepared to play that part because mm -hmm. of training. And and that's the sort of thing that you always look for uh, when you're auditioning for a job is, you know, you're the right person in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And that's really sort of uh, how I look at that casting, because uh, in my experience, it was unusual for the fact that it wasn't a catacall where I would go into a casting agent's office, sit on a line with a bunch of other people, go in, read a bunch of lines to a to a, a video camera and then go home and never hear anything. Here I was brought down to the actual Saban building, taken up to the fourth floor, sat in, in, a, in a conference room and given the lines and told, you know, you're a 10,000 year old wizard, you're trapped in a time warp, go. <laughs> and, you know, the, the basic premise of, you know, because I had, I don't know if, if they had told me or if I had asked a question and they said, well, we're taking some shows. Uh, it's a Japanese Sentai show and we're going to mix in some American footage. And I was like, oh, so it's it's kind of like Ultraman. And like, yeah, it's very much like Ultraman. OK, I get it. So I, I knew exactly what what the show was going to be about. And I had watched Ultraman growing up. I had seen Spectre Man and um Marine Boy and Speed Racer, so I was I was very aware, and of course, uh, Battle for the Planets or or, mm -hmm. or Gotcha Man, and um, so I was very aware of this sort of tradition of America taking these shows from a foreign country and dubbing them and and turning it into something new. So I was like, mm -hmm. I I understand completely what that is. Yeah, you know, I also was uh, aware enough to you know be able to kind of spy on what the other gentleman was rehearsing for his take on the character and and thinking, oh, no, that's completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was going for a much more of a, a vulture-type character. He's not, ah, Power Rangers. Oh. <laughs> oh, no, that would not have worked at all. <laughs> yeah, was, you know, we were told it was sort of like this mm -hmm. kind of thing, so I think he went with that direction of it. And, mm -hmm. uh, here I was thinking, oh no, this this character has to be much larger than that. It needs mm -hmm. to be a presence to reckon with. And you know, in my mind, I was thinking, this is this is Zeus on Mount Olympus talking to Perseus and telling him what needs to be done, to, you know, to save the world and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I went for a very deeper, um, much more deity-like presence. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's what got me the part. So yeah, well, like you said, your your skills definitely got you the audition that got you the part. But Zordon is when you look at like the the cavalcade of Power Rangers leaders, Zordon is like iconic. He's endearing. He's the one that basically, at least you know, the United States, everyone remembers more than everyone. He everyone's compared to Zordon. So yeah. What's something that you think that maybe you did that made Zordon him? That if anyone else would have played him he wouldn't have been the same character. I think even though I had this deep commanding voice, I think there is a, a great deal of empathy that Zordon has. Um, this um, uh, this very deep caring about the kids who are taking on this mantle of danger. Um, you know, in, in, in recent times, there have been uh, takes about Power Rangers where it's like, how evil was Zordon to put these kids into danger and to make them sort of um, child soldiers to fight a war that wasn't there to begin with and 
and that sort of thing. But you know, back in the in the '90s and when we were doing it, it was so obvious that it, that wasn't the case. It was just this cheesy G-rated cartoon, living cartoon show. Uh, but I think one of the reasons why Zordon has endured is that unlike other mentor characters for other superhero teams, um, you know, I was I was super excited when the show was on the air because it was in this power hour of Power Rangers and X-Men, the animated cartoon. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm like the Professor X of, of Power Rangers. <laughs> um, but I mean, uh, when you look at other superhero teams uh, akin to uh, Power Rangers, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or or whatever, mm -hmm. Uh, the mentor character at, at some point in those shows uh, jumps into the fight with the heroes, um, you know, helps them out physically or or in some way, you know, rescues them or something like that. Mm -hmm. Zordon never did that. Zordon was this uh, disembodied head who uh, the only tool in his toolbox that he could use was this supportive parental I believe in you philosophy that you can do this. I know you can do this. Um, you're here for a reason. I believe in you. And I think that's an incredibly powerful lesson for kids who are five, six, seven, eight years old watching the show and hearing somebody tell them, I believe in you, you can do this. And I think that's the, the greatest element of the character that I can think of that subconsciously or consciously has uh, put him always sort of like in, you know, in the top three of who people's favorite Power Rangers mentors are or whatever. Yeah. He reminds me of, uh, of like a JRPG mentor that, that he, he makes sure that you get the things that you need, you know, as they come up. Right. It, it's, it's not so much like over leveling and, and making sure you can just wipe out everything at once. It's like, Nope, Nope. You're meeting this challenge. We're going to get you this thing now. And, and, you know the the classic on the job training, right? <laughs> um, but uh, tell you what, we we've got a uh, another fan question for you that on the topic of Zordon. Now, mm. you've mentioned that Zordon's mouth didn't sink because it was a cost savings method for the studio. If money weren't a concern, what else do you wish producers could have done for Zordon? Uh, it would have been nice to see Zordon outside of of the tube. Um, mm -hmm whether in a flashback or um, I, from an actor's standpoint, it would have been nice to have something else to do on the show rather than show up every five or six weeks to do voice lines. Um, uh, <laughs> but I mean, the way the show was structured, the, you know, I, I when I look back on it, I really think that the guys, and I could be completely wrong about this. This, this is just my supposition about the whole thing sure. is that, it was really easy for them to write themselves into a corner mm -hmm. and, uh, because when I did the role, there was no backstory for Zordon. There was, there was no, there was no discussion about what the morphing grid was. Why was, why was he no longer on Eltar? Um, you know, what was, how did he get, you know, to be this wise? How did he get to be, you know, involved in this sort of conflict with Rita and, and all this other kind of stuff? It was just, it was all very basic, something that a five or six year old would be like, ah, I understand. Yeah, that's good. Go. <laughs> <laughs> and it is that sort of silly thing about, you know, Gordon had all of these tools in his toolbox that he only pop pulled out at the right time. Oh, well, here, let me give you a new Zord because that other one was, you know, didn't work out for that problem or whatever. It's like you couldn't have given that, you know, right from the beginning. You know, why do we, why, why do you have to keep hiding these things from us or whatever? But um, <laughs> 
Because <laughs> this one stick shift, okay? The other ones, just those are automatic. All right. Yeah. This is this which is, is why um, you know when I when I look at what Kyle Higgins and Ryan Parrott have done uh, with Power Rangers in the Boom Studio comics, I'm like, that is awesome mm-hmm, because yeah. we get to understand the reasoning why you know all this is happening. You know the the backstory and stuff, and oh, this makes sense now. And and um, they they really weren't operating on that because. Um, I know from from an actor's standpoint, we didn't think it was going to last more than a season, two seasons, because that was the tradition for Saturday morning cartoons. You know, mm-hmm. you would you would have once one year of it, and then it would get replaced by whatever was new the next year. But um, I think the you know the guys in the business office and Heim Saban knew that you know you know we could drag this out for five or six years because we have all this merchandise mm-hmm. because the show really was basically to sell toys. That's what it was all about. Oh, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so they really weren't paying a whole lot of attention to, you know, continuity and storyline and, mm-hmm. and what this character was going to do and, and, you know, what we thought they should do and that sort of thing. Um, and it, you know, it's very interesting to see that in the 95 movie, you know, they, they bring Zordon outside of the tube and then, you know, he, you know, he almost perishes or whatever. And then it turns out that that movie isn't really canon to the series and, yeah. uh, they do the ninjetti sequence all over again on the TV series. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that they had this sort of Kevin Feige Marvel timeline of we're going to start here with this and end up over here with this. Mm-hmm. And all of this stuff is going to tie in together. You know, they were just like, uh, we need an episode about a purse monster. Mm-hmm. And then they would go <laughs> mash all that together. So, yeah, I mean, well- from a production standpoint, it was very smart of them to do things the way they did because it was quick and easy and boom. Mm-hmm. From an act- actor standpoint, it really sucked. <laughs> oh yeah, well I mean, I mean that's what makes sense. Like they they made the show for a for a pretty young audience. Like I said, with the target audience was what between like what six and ten. Like it was it was it was a window that you were making it for. And like you said, Saturday mornings had a tradition of like a year and the show's done. And even like the the Sentai series. That's tradition there too. It gets a season and then they're done and they have something new. So Mighty Morphin was more or less this amazing attempt at taking everything was formulaic sent for it to be temporary, but they're able to stretch it and make it into something that mm. worked for as long as it possibly could. Mm. And it was it was fantastic. And now, like I love that you brought up um Boom Studios because this is where, like, again, like initially it was just meant to entertain um a younger audience. But now that audience is growing up, they still love like all the visuals about the property. They love the characters of the property, and they're able to flesh out more of this coherent backstory yeah. that wasn't necessarily in in mind when they made the original series. So, getting getting close to the 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 end of the podcast here, we want to look at more again, uh, more onto you and look at uh, more of your writing because you brought it up a little bit when you had talked about. Uh, your link, Lincoln Bright, and kind of your idea of how the character is able to solve issues through his world. So, transitioning to that now, I feel like when you're starting to write something brand new, that is incredibly difficult. So, how do you actually begin your writing process? Do you start with an issue that you like to solve and then think of characters around it, or how do you get the ball rolling? I think too much. <laughs> um, uh, there's always something that, you know, kind of sticks in my, in my brain and I, I worry it 
like an oyster worries a grain of sand until it turns into something that might be valuable. Like five years ago, I had come up with the idea for a story called Blacktop Jacker, which is about uh, sort of the collapse of the United States, and, and which all starts with the the prolifer proliferation or the rise of smart trucks, these self-driving vehicles that can deliver goods across the nation without somebody at the wheel. And how would that transform the landscape and the economy of the United States if all of a sudden hundreds of thousands of people are now out of a job because self-driving trucks don't have to stop at a uh, strip mall or a um, gassing plaza to buy lunch or dinner or toothpaste. You know, they, they don't have to stop for showers or sleep or any of those things. So all of these businesses that line the highways of the nation Will they go belly up if there are if there are nobody visiting them? You know, what does that do for the economic collapse of the United States? And then given the current political climate, who capitalizes on that? Does Texas secede from the union? And what happens when when that goes on? And, you know, these truckers who are now out of a job start doing what they did in the old west, where they start hijacking the trucks that they used to drive and jacking them and stealing the goods so that they can give to the poor people that aren't getting the goods that they need. And um, so that kind of snowballs in my brain into like, you know, 500,000 words of a story. <laughs> sure. And pretty much, you know, the same thing happened with Lincoln Bright because I was dealing with uh, unrequited feeling or um, not unrequited, but unresolved uh, emotional feelings about my divorce. And I was thinking, okay, well, how do, how do I, how do I therapize myself out of that? And, you know, uh, one thing, you know, and I was also trying to think in a very sort of business-like way about how can I tell a ghost story, which is about things that are unresolved, things that get left behind that you worry to death. Uh, but how can I make that different? And because I didn't want to use the word ghost. Mm -hmm, uh, sure. I didn't want to use something that so many people had written stories about. I wanted something to be different because that way, uh, you know, everybody needs a hook. Everybody needs a uh, something that makes it stand out. And that's where I came up with the idea of Glenn's and how certain things that get left behind, again, will ripple out and still continue to do harm long after the inciting incident is over with. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that transformed into like this really awesome world where there's a cult of apocalyptic magicians who are trying to create as many of these things as possible because they they want to cleanse the world of of evil and all that kind of thing. So those are the kind of things that you know they start off as one thing, but then <laughs> they snowball down the hill into something. So was was then like you brought up glimpse, was it always meant to be three books or was that kind of like a snowball effect? You got writing like, you know what? I think this has to go to another book. Uh, the original incarnation of of Lincoln Bright actually was a story called The Springs, where um, Lincoln was going to be um, he was going to inherit a hotel, much like the Overlook from The Shining, where um, his uncle or somebody had passed away and he was. Uh, you know, willed this giant hotel that he now then had to run and take care of. And the idea at that point was that every room in that hotel was haunted. 
and there would be every every Lincoln Bride story would be about a different room in the hotel. And I thought, well, that's that's kind of a neat little <laughs> twenty book series, you know. I could do that, <laughs> uh, but then I, you know, I started to think about it, and I was like, well, you know, I don't think I want to write Lincoln the way that James Bond is written, or the way that the Executioner novels were written, where there's like twenty seven of them, and it's like, how many times can this guy, you know, shoot his way out of a terrorist situation <laughs> or whatever? Um, so and and then it just became much more compact, and so uh, the Lincoln Bright series will end after four books. Yeah. Well, I know uh, one of the things your IMD page shows is that uh, your project called The Order is now entered post production. What can you tell us about The Order? Uh, well, I mean, The Order is sort of uh, in a holding pattern right now. Karen is really doing a lot of the groundwork for that because she's out in Los Angeles. She's been knocking on so many doors. She's been having so many meetings with people to try to sell this idea because we had originally uh, had done it um, because Karen uh, Karen has been part of the convention circuit for, gosh, 10 years or more, 12 years, mm -hmm. something like that. And you know, through all these times of being going, going to conventions and meeting fans and stuff, they were always asking, when are you guys going to work together again? When are we going to see the old gang back together again? And there was always something um, where um, either the script didn't work out or this person didn't want to be a part of the project and, and whatever. Uh, but, you know, instead of waiting for Saban or whoever owned the Power Rangers would try to bring everybody back together, Karen was like, ah, screw it, we're going to do it ourselves. She found out that I was a writer and we started talking, emailing back and forth. And then we found out very quickly that Karen and I had a very compatible easy writing relationship where I would send her something and she would go like, this is fantastic. And then she would add something and I would send it back and go, oh, this is fantastic too. And, uh, you know, at the, at the end of a month and a half, we had our script and we were like, holy crap, this is, this is pretty good. And we were very scared about showing it to anybody else because we didn't want them to think, oh, this is another project that's going to be, you know, wackier or whatever. Um, but we were very lucky in the fact that the people that, you know, we had invited to, be a part of it they all look, read the script and thought this is fantastic this is awesome and um we had done the the indiegogo for it and um and then uh, unfortunately the union stepped in and put the kibosh on it so it was it was shut down four days before we were ready to film oh. all of us there we were all had we all had the costumes lined up we had the set pieces lined up we had all the equipment ready to go uh and then it was just it was just shut down and Karen was in tears, but she's been trying to keep it alive. She's been trying to um, shop it around and, and, and make it into possibly a series that might air on some streaming network or whatever. So that's where it's at at this point in time. It's, it's, it's out there. It's, uh, it's got this wonderful pitch deck that you know, anybody who looks at it would be like, this is freaking amazing. But for whatever reason, it, it isn't, it isn't being tapped to say, okay, let's do this. Yeah, well, I mean, it just goes to show just how you know difficult it is to to make it in that industry where you can have an amazing idea, you can have an amazing cast lined up, and then it doesn't get picked up, or a union steps in and says, "No, it's mm. not happening." Yeah. Mm -hmm. wow. Well, as we as we kind of draw things to a close here, again, we'd like to thank you very much for your time this evening and coming in and talking with us, uh, answering our fan questions. And what we like to do with the last bit of our shows when we have guests is kind of just give them the floor for the last few minutes where you can talk about any projects you're passionate about, 
any anything you've got on your horizon or you know anything that you're still hoping to accomplish so the floor is yours where can we find you and you know what's next for david j fielding uh well you can find me on twitter at david j fielding or you can find me on instagram at dj fielding underscore zordon um those are my two main social media contact places now i'm currently finishing up edits for book three of the lincoln bright series and you know preparing and, and researching and and making sure that i have all of my ducks in a row to finish book four and then i'm also sort of just sort of like noodling around about what what will what will be the next story after that that's basically all that's been going on i've been i've been trying to the, the world is on fire <laughs> there's mm -hmm. so much going on um that we should be concerned about and so many things that um are I don't want to say more important than you know what we're talking about here, but you know, in a way, they they kind of are. And um, let's all hope that things work out for the best. That we don't get drawn into a worldwide conflict, which would suck for everybody. And you know, just it's really kind of cheesy to think that a, a character that I played one day thirty years ago, um, again, very much like the stories I read growing up, the movies and uh, TV shows that all of us watched growing up that had these sort of life lessons that tell you, you know, <laughs> just don't be a dick, you know, uh, mm -hmm. to be, to be the better person, to be the bigger person. And yet we find ourselves in situations where those lessons that we try to teach ourselves over and over are not being paid attention by the people that we allow to run things. And I really wish that the phrase, may the power protect you, really come true a lot more than it does. And so in my my short little soapbox here, it's like, just be kind, take your time to empathize with people because the more empathy we put out there, maybe some of this darkness that we feel crowding in on us will be pushed back a little bit. So let's try to do more of that. Well, that's I, awesome awesome yeah and you know what i know like you can always hope that your reach can go as far as it can but you know at least from this end of the table i have to say that you know what you do did and what you did and what you do does have an impact because it definitely had impact on me and who i grew up to be because of watching power rangers from me reading other science fiction books and the characters that i invested so much of my time and energy into so what you did did make a difference for so many and we can only hope that more will learn from what you've tried teaching us. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. I'm pumping the chest for you right now, David. <laughs> Seriously, you've been amazing. You survived the digital dissection. An hour goes quick. And uh, we really do appreciate and look forward to your next upcoming projects here. So um, it's been a great time. Thanks, guys. Appreciate yeah. it.